Okay, let's do a little bit of background stuff. You're, sure. Some, something made me laugh because someone was like, where are you from? And you're like, I'm half Canadian, half American. And then the person was like, oh, you're a mix. And I'm like, wait a second. Does it <laughs> yeah. count? That's just... I'm all Canadian and all American. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not... white on white. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> half breed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my mom is from Pittsburgh, and it's a really old American family. We have had a... A relative that signed the Constitution. We have a relative that fought in the Civil War. Like it's a. You have a relative that signed the Constitution. Yeah, Alexander Alexander Baldwin, way back. You know, so it's a old American family, and they're from, um, what's it called, Mount Union, Pennsylvania, like sort of hillbilly country. And then my grandparents moved to Pittsburgh, and uh, then yeah, so that's my American family. And then my Canadian family is more recent immigrants from Scotland and England. Or my grand, well, not so recent. My grandparents moved to Canada. I grew up in uh, mostly in Toronto, and uh, then at seventeen moved to Montreal to study at McGill in composition. Oh, that's a famous school for composition. Yeah, it has a good program for sure. And like, well, McGill's nice. It has a lot of performers more than anything, and they're really good. Like, it's the best school in Canada for performance. So. Then I did a year of study in Brussels, and then I moved to New York, and I've been in New York for just over two years. Wait, so you only have an undergraduate degree? No, I did actually an undergraduate and master's degree at McGill in okay. Montreal. And then I did like private study with this sort of personal pro- project type thing to study in Brussels for um, eight months. And then now I'm in the middle of um, a doctorate at Columbia University in New York. Oh, Okay. What? Oh, that's why you're in. So that's why you're in New York. Yeah. Okay. I thought you just moved there to move there. I didn't know you were going to Columbia. Oh no, I moved there for school. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they, and... they took a lot of McGill people, huh? Yeah, they do. <laughs> they uh... take a. Well, actually, this year is the first year that they didn't take a McGill person in many years. I think the last eight years they've taken. You know, they only get three people coming in a year, and almost always one of them is a McGill graduate. Why is that? Um. Well, the thing is, there's not so many schools that do uh the sort of vein of contemporary music that columbia and mcgill are part of so you have like mcgill you have um uc san diego you have harvard you have columbia uc berkeley to a certain extent what wesleyland but it's not there's not a lot of schools actually so everyone's coming oh and oberlin so also columbia has like a third oberlin a third mcgill and a third miscellaneous Wow, really? Yeah. Describe to me what, like, what you said, the vein of contemporary music. What does that mean? I, I, it's hard to pinpoint, actually. And I think it's becoming more and more diffuse. But, I mean, just the simple fact that people are meticulously notating scores and making very detailed scores for acoustic instruments and often mixing live electronics in sort of the vein that one sees at uh, IRCAM. You know, in North America, these schools that I mentioned are sort of the places where that type of thing goes on. And it's, of course, much broader than that. And in fact, at Columbia, there's a a huge range of what people do. And there are some people that that come from improvised music and sort of free jazz world more even. Yeah. Some people that are very... have their history based really in computer music. And some people... uh, that are much more sort of traditional, almost like orchestra type people that you would maybe also meet at Juilliard. Yeah, I want to get back to well, why'd you go to Brussels? Um, I 
I met this composer, uh, I never pronounce his last name right, but I'll do the anglicized version, Luke Brewers. And he's a um, composer in his 50s from Belgium. And he has written a lot of really amazing uh, orchestra music and is a like brilliant orchestrator. And I wanted to go study with him specifically focusing on orchestra music and orchestration. And so that's what I did. I went and we and I wrote an orchestra piece, hoping to with no commission, just hoping to, that it would be accepted by such and such a festival or such and such a reading session. Unfortunately, it's never been accepted to anything. Of course, why would you do that? <laughs> never write an orchestra piece on spec. Right is what I like, well. It was just I'd never written any orchestra piece, and I and I wanted to, and so. You know that was a project, I guess. So it, you know, it's too bad, but in the end, I think it was still worth it. And I'm still, I mean, this was only two years ago, so there's maybe hope eventually a reading session, at least. You know, you think it was worth it? I think it was worth it. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Um. I mean, you don't even know if what you did was right or wrong. If it was because you've never even heard it. I mean, the process in the process of working on it, I think I learned a lot about orchestration, whether or not I got to hear the result. It is not the most adventurous piece. So what I've how written did, is actually learn- easier, easy enough to imagine what it sounds like. And generally, like I know, I know how it's going to end up if it's rehearsed and played. And there are, will probably be some surprises, but it's not, it's not a totally experimental piece. Really. Okay, what did you learn? from just writing an orchestra piece and not having it played? I learned, well, I'm going to sound a little bitter now. I learned that one should not write a lot of Divisi and then send it for applications to uh, reading sessions. And also, I well, I, it has microtones also. I feel like a lot of people, orchestra directors, probably open a score and see quarter tones and then shut the score. And okay, exactly. So you learned about the politics of the orchestra. Well, that, which but, is uh, shitty. but also, I mean, I think I, I, think I did learn about... I guess orchestration in general, how to how to balance instruments, and it would be really nice to hear it because of that. But even in, during the process, I did a lot of listening, and I, you know, really concentrated on these issues. Okay, I see. So, if anything, it made you it made you study or other orchestral music before, where maybe you wouldn't have gone there. Yeah, I, if nothing else, then yes, that. Yeah. Okay. So it just made you think about it for a while. Yeah. But as more far or less. as real world practical experience. Man. No, I mean it's frustrating to not have it performed. Yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I'm just trying to stay positive. I guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, no. but um, uh, I mean, I still have hope that it'll one day at least be read. I mean, so do I. Yeah. 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 So I'm there was to hear it. Like a Toronto Symphony um, is doing a reading session for the first time in many years this year, and it's the exact right instrumentation. So I'm going to send it into that, and maybe it'll have a chance. I mean, me being from Toronto as well might help. So yeah, we'll see. Did you feel like you had to write an orchestral piece at some point? Like it, it was like part of the checklist of I'm a composer. I have to write for this massive ensemble now. Not so much. It's more that I, it was more that I wanted to. And I know the orchestra is a really problematic institution, but I still, I really like orchestra music and I really like well done contemporary orchestra music, which is, in my opinion, what like this Luke Brewer's person that I studied with his orchestra pieces are fantastic. So yeah, I wanted to try to go down that road, and maybe I still will, but it depends on if I can get orchestra pieces ever commissioned or played. Yeah, that's the thing. I think, like, I also like the sound of orchestral music a lot, 
that specific type of sound and also the very limited ways you can kind of manipulate it too. It's actually not a very flexible thing, but if you like the way that sounds, yeah, then go for it. But I've had experience just writing for orchestras. And I don't mean like in a big commission way at all. I mean, literally like the programs I was in was like, you have to write an orchestra piece now. And then we get the, you know, that we have people play it. Right. One and of I these summer in, program yeah, type deals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was maybe not like the most, but then again, what is a new music orchestra? You know, but every time I was in that situation, I was like, <laughs> no orchestral time. And then I do smaller chamber stuff. With people who ask me, like everybody was like, we all heard your music and want you to do this. It's maybe like maximum 12 players or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing for the past two, three years. And I'm like, this is great. This is exactly what I want it to be. Yeah. The piece you had last night, how many players was that? Eight. Eight? Yeah. Four singers, four instruments. Now, like the, the way you were able to, like how much rehearsal time did you get? This week? Actually quite a bit. Um, Maybe six hours. If, okay, that's a lot. You know, that's pretty good. It's considered a lot, yeah. And there's no way you're going to get that with an orchestra. Yeah, of They're course. going to give it's you six hour. hours. That's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. If there was a problem, it wasn't a problem with the section. It was a problem with the person who you knew who also was into new music because they're playing at Gaudiamos. There's like maybe a confusion about what the notation is, mm-hmm. you know. But you can identify a problem and fix it relatively easily. The attitude of, you know, it's better. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And actually, more and more, I feel like an even more extreme version of that where I want to be writing for people my age that I know even more specifically. Yeah. And not it's not a control thing. It's just like, I don't know, it's just a more fulfilling sort of social experience. Yeah. Um, which go And that translates into usually excellent performances. I mean, because there are a lot of excellent young ensembles and the the more recently formed ensembles are generally, I don't know, more easier to work with in rehearsals and, and more outgoing and more adventurous. And I think more interesting to listen to more energetic. So, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, obviously I haven't tried to write another orchestra piece since then, but I, I'd still like to have the experience at some point. To yeah. And the truth is I'm probably a total hypocrite too. I've just haven't had the opportunity to be a hypocrite. Right. In other words, if like someone, <laughs> like if some orchestra was like, damn, we want you to write a piece for us. I can't say if I'd be like, no, I don't believe in it. You know, I'd probably, I'd probably say yes. And there's also been like this explosion of bad ass, like new music ensembles that have been, are relatively small in size. And by that, I mean, no more than, no more than 20 at most. Right. So it's not like that there's not an interest in for people of us like out there. We just feel this need that this is like part of our thing that we have to write for orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Some people definitely feel that, but. But yeah, these are the groups I'm talking about. I think it's it's really, it's I think it's important to come away come away from a whole rehearsal concert thing with everyone feeling positive and fulfilled about it. I mean, even if everyone's getting paid, and so you know you can't feel bad about it. It's work or whatever. It's I think it's still important to to be enjoying what you're doing if if you're doing contemporary music. Yeah. So anyway, you're in you're in uh, New York right now. Yeah. How long have you been at Columbia? Uh, I just finished my second year. They're mixing it up right now, aren't they? Uh, well, they've hired uh, Georg Frederick Haas, who's yeah. coming in um, September. Yeah, no, it's a good place to be. It's it's structured in a very nice way, where there's the whole thing is designed so that one has enough time to write music and do projects outside of school, which everyone has a lot of. And so 
it ends up functioning like a long-term residency in a lot of ways with this sort of academic side as well. You think most good academic institutions are just basically long-term residencies? I like the way you said that, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I don't have enough experience outside of Columbia to know what other programs are like, really. I mean, McGill is certainly different. It was heavier like it's a sort of a harder program at the doctoral level because it's less years, um, less funding and more coursework and, and, uh, these, um, sort of very difficult exams at the end and like a very long text that you need to write about your own music. So the work is actually much more intensive. And I think it, it's actually, it's better if you can fill the school with students that are very self-motivated, it's better to have this more removed attitude, I think, because people are doing really good work. And if they were being bogged down by a huge amount of demands from the school, they would probably not have, they probably not develop as well, or at least it would be developing differently. Yeah. Exa- and what's the point of having all that coursework? Well, I mean, okay. So that knowledge is helpful for you to draw upon whenever yeah, you need it. Yeah. And it, it depends but... what you what you how you want to shape your your future in terms of how much preparation you feel you need to get a job at university for example i mean the, the courses that one has to do if uh, at mcgill that's that i had to do during my masters they're not useless in any means but they take a lot of time and they're not composition are you talking about like solfege or like no i mean solfege is all done in undergrad and then uh so there's like sort of advanced modal counterpoint classes that that you need to do there, um, sort of a la Nadia Boulanger school. Yeah. Um, and music theory and um, uh, a, a, a one graduate seminar, which is changes all the time per semester that you're there. Actually, it's good. Uh, it's, it's mostly good, but at a certain point, at a certain point, I'm still in school. I'm approaching 30, but at a certain point, I think I feel like I'm a little bit done taking classes. I mean, I would still learn stuff, but I feel like I've had enough in a way of course. Just, le- just leave me alone. Yeah. Give me money and let me be in New York. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And they do that. <laughs> That's cool. They do it. And they're like, okay, but we don't want to teach these undergrads. So we'll give you everything you want, but you have to teach intro to music, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah, 101. Yeah, that's basically how it works. And there's this under, then you're teaching these undergrads that like all of them are going to be, it's like Ivy League. So all of them are going to be like really successful, whatever. Yeah. And it's, they have some weird requirement being like, actually, we also kind of want to try and make you into a human being. So you have to have a little bit of culture. So everybody listen to me, you know, do an intro course starting with Bach, you yeah. know? Yeah. No, that's, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That's yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly what it's like. What did you learn from counterpoint that you use in your music now? You um, said extensive modal counterpoint. What did you, what did you learn from that? I guess it's, I'm being, I'm being a cynical right now. I guess it's helpful to have that. No, in your head. I, I, I mean, I find, I find, uh, that the, it was mostly 16th century counterpoint and I found it fascinating and there was lots of interesting things, um, in terms of like formal arrangement, the, the way that the, these sort of strict overall rules and then sort of softer rules, sort of tendencies, happen in terms of how the lines interact and move and how the really excellent composers of the time could sort of form their music in like a seemingly really free way but within these like crazily unpermissive rules i mean that in itself was really interesting to see i do a lot of things in my music where i i like to take something very familiar 
and transpose it to somewhere where it becomes strange a little bit. So something like you take um, a four-part phrase in following strictly modal counterpoint rules, but the pitches are from... The tuning is completely from an extended just intonation palette and one never hears a root or something like this. So it's just... So you hear the relationship with ancient music, but it's sort of uncanny. It's made made weird. Okay. And so things like that. In the piece that I heard last night, no was counterpoint. There some, I know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I heard it, so I knew there was no counterpoint. But uh, is it the same kind of technique where you're taking a, like, what was the familiar? What was the, and how did you dement it? Right. Yeah. Actually, yeah, yesterday's piece is a really good example of that. So, yeah, in Motorman Fragments, well, I should sort of start from the beginning a little bit. So the text is from a book called Motorman by David Ole, and it's um, a science fiction novel from 1974. And it's uh, it's never really clearly stated, but it's sort of suggested that it's in a post-apocalyptic world or an alternate history in the United States. And he does this thing where you have sort of normal rituals that are made weird in the book. Or really weird things that are made normal. So like sometimes really grotesque things happen. Like they're walking down the road and they're like dead bodies are falling off of this truck of these sort of semi-humans and nobody sort of bats an eye. So that's like a normalization of something that's really crazy. Like a, a river lighting on fire. you know. And this happened in the States in the 70s. So he's he, he's playing with like sort of really crazy things that happened. You mean like before, before like uh, EPA? You mean like Environmental Protection Agency, like yeah. rivers would light on fire? Yeah, there's definitely like a uh, an eco-environmental sort of thing that happens in this book or message or whatever. So I tried to do a similar types of things in the music. So there are tons of examples, actually. One is there's a movement that has sort of flamenco guitar accompaniment like repeated pick patterns uh, changing chords regularly and um, rasguedo techniques and stuff but the guitar is totally detuned and sort of the phrasing is specifically made a little bit awkward or purposely made it a bit awkward so it's supposed to be sort of like very familiar but not quite what you expect it to be and play with that a lot use some warner brothers pastiche in it that sort of falls apart at weird areas or has like wrong notes, this sort of thing is sort of very, very simple techniques actually. And then it's just a matter of putting them together in a way that might make sense. Bricks are usually rectangular because in that way they are most suitable for building the vertical walls of our houses. However, anyone who has had to do with the stacking of stones of a non-cubic type will be well aware of other possibilities. For instance, one can make use of tetrahedrons alternating with octahedrons. They are not practicable for human beings to build with because they make neither vertical walls nor horizontal floor. However, when this building is filled with water, flatworms can swim in it. He read the letter Bernhardt had left. Dear friend Muldenki, some years back, as I gathered, the government phased out the postal tax. 
Heretofore, as you may be aware, the government was actually paying them ten shit a paper a week to eat the rats and other rodents that were eating the mail. A kind of twisted food chain deal. That plan went along nicely for a time until some jellyhead in some post office hole decided that further rules were needed in order to stem the tide of profiteering, slave-holding, and poison rank which rose among the cats. These rules were known as the Private Bag Ordinances, the PBO. And they generally held that the rats of a given mailbag were the property, the private and exclusive property of the cat who could daily stock the area of the bag. Naturally, this served only to increase the dominance of the stronger cats over the weaker cats, as you might expect. Not surprisingly, the weaker cats lobbied for ordinances declaring that all bags must be watched equally and that all proceeds should be divided accordingly. Enough of this, Moldanky. I'm off to the greenhouse. See you in the city. As always, Bernhardt. from the corner of his eye. She tossed a banana flower at his foot and warmed him with the flow of spirit and a smile. He raised his trowel and indicated the greenhouse. They walked along the rows of succulents, pressing thick leaves between their fingers. She broke open the stalk of an ice plant, drew a circle on his forehead with its juices, made an X Inside the circle, the space around them fell into silent patterns. The space around them fell into silent patterns. She lifted her Indian dress and dipped a foot in the frog pool. Two suns were up. Two suns were up. She said her name was Cock Roberta.
During the years previous to the Mock War, Muldenki was employed at the Tropical Garden as a banana man. and watched the first artificial sun break apart and burn out a slow dry rain white ash persisted through summer fall by winter a second sun was up blinding to look at and almost warm enough moon, the first moon, had been a shadow game, a projection of zero on a screen of gas. A mock month before it went up, Muldenki learned of it in a letter from Bernhardt. You will soon have a reason to take a look at the night sky again. Eagleman has a moon on the drafting table. The concept of it is difficult even for me to grasp the way he explains it. Actually, what amounts to is not much more than a photograph. A slide picture of the old original moon projected against the gassier layers. And he's provided for changing your slides for the various phases and so on. A very efficient, quite portable moon. Moldanky. The man is a repository of mechanical wisdom. A swarm of intelligent thoughts in his head. Someday we'll all look to Eagleman to get us through. Mind what I say and keep your eye on the sky. Hopefully yours, Bernhardt.
Uncle Danky had postponed the matter of Booster Heart until one of his lungs had collapsed. Bernhardt had written a letter. My dear declining Dink, it's not an altogether cheering prospect. You moon child, you moon child. I sat back and let you be overtaken by a flotilla of polyps. The physician's ethical silence and deference to your feelings. I couldn't sleep. Never again, son. Where it pertains to you, nature drives in rearward gear. I watch the teeth rot out, the eye close, and now the heart is down to a slug's crawl. In this case, I will not sit back and let the long Moldenki line run out of ink. May I suggest a set of booster hearts? The surgery is child's work. You swallow the pill and dream about a necklace of planets or whatever. Whatever. I'll install the hearts myself, I admit. I wouldn't mind putting on the rubbers again. It's been a number of seasons, and when it's all over, when you got four little pumpers helping the big one along, we'll each take home two sheep for the barbecue. Look at it that way. Your doctor, Bernhard. Dear Muldenki, if you place a cup over the ear, you can hear the boosters working. As your physician in the narrow sense, I advise you to do it frequently. Monitor yourself. And as your friend in the fullest sense, I would say, avoid any avoidable excitement. Your friend, Dr. Bernhardt. Dear doctor, I woke up to the sirens this morning with a chest full of nettles. I couldn't avoid it. I behaved accordingly. It was good to get your letter. Your patient, Muldenki. Dear Muldenki, Dear Muldenki, medically speaking, you shouldn't do more than a sheep would do. Sirens can't be helped. Imagine yourself in a mock meadow grazing, in a stable being shorn. Work on it. Quickly, Dr. Bernhardt. Dear Dr. Bernhardt, no more than a sheep would do? Should I assume that the operation failed? I was able to do more than a sheep before with one heart. Am I to assume that the operation did nothing? Anxiously yours, Moldenki. Dearest Dinky, what we're after in this particular surgical procedure is longevity. You will probably live longer, though not as well. We're looking for quantity here, and it also has its dangers, most notably the fact that if one goes, they all go, or be satisfied with the brighter side. Since the main one can't possibly fail until the other four in succession do, you'll have a warning, an unmeasured period of grace. We should all be so lucky. We should all be so lucky. We should all be so lucky. Yours, the one of hearts, Doc Bernie. Do you always have to take a reference and pervert it in some way? Um, no, I would say not always. But this is sort of what this piece was about. You know, fundamentally, the, the Motorman piece and pieces are about creating a world that an alternate history sort of alternate universe world and so that's that's sort of the way i approach it but i have some pieces that are just well they're just trying to sort of create a musical grammar in themselves and they're
sort of more typical ways of building a piece of music, I guess. What's your grammar? Like, is, is there a big difference between the grammar you have when you borrow and the grammar when you're like, it's just me? So, right. I mean, it's never just you, obviously. Yeah, of course. But, like, you know what I mean when I say that. Like, it's, yeah. just, it's just whatever is in your head and what you feel like doing without you, you know, consciously saying, I'm taking this and I'm doing something with it. Yeah, I'd say there's a pretty big difference in how it sounds. I think that with this particular issue aside, from one piece to the next, I, it could be written by a different person, I think, sometimes. I like to play with style, basically. And so... And this is usually, this is often what sort of defines uh, a piece being recognizably by a certain composer, the issues of style. And I like to think that I'm able to sort of change this sort of strong surface elements like that quite a bit from piece to piece. Maybe I have three or four different sort of sounds that I've explored so far, and it would be hard to to tell if you didn't know that it was the same composer or I hope anyway. Don't you want your own consistency? So people go, Oh my God, that sounded amazing. You did it again. Right. Or maybe not. You did it again, but like people are drawn to composers because they like the music they write. And if it's drastically different from yeah. piece to piece, then it's true. I think, you know, the, some of the most successful composers, they have their sound. And people go to them for to get that sound. Yeah, don't you want that? I guess. I mean, I, I guess. I, I mean, like anyone, I do want sort of success, you know, and that it may help with that. But in terms of actually making, um, in terms of actually making music and and creating pieces, um, I think it's more interested, more interesting to sort of be as free as possible. I mean, I, th I do think about this issue a lot, and there's there are pieces where that I can in the. In, of what I wrote, I've written that I consider sort of like ends of certain things that I did. So, for example, I have this piece for the Nouvel Ensemble Moderne called Les Trains au Vent Les Chaux, which is for video and chamber orchestra. And it was the last piece of a certain way of writing that I did for maybe two years. And I felt like it was like a really good piece and it was the everything sort of worked. You know, everything had been had been figured out from mistakes in earlier pieces and the sort of grammar and sound and what I was trying to do with the form, they, it all worked in that piece. And so from there, one can write similar pieces and keep sort of chiseling away at that at that style and, you know, have a lot of variation still, but or one can sort of try to move on to something totally different. And I think for me, it's, it's more interesting to, to move on to something else. Um, that makes it also difficult to market yourself, doesn't it? Groups commission you saying, we like his music. And they hire you and they're like, we want something in the vein of what he does. I mean, we're not looking for something predictable, but we were looking for something that'll be somehow have a consistent thread that we're into. And so we'll know we'll get something. And if you're moving on to things constantly, then then they're like, well, we don't know. I mean, I guess you're right. Uh, but the thing is, I don't have any sort of, I mean, I guess I have performances and stuff, but I don't really have a career to speak of. So it's it's like, uh, it. I don't feel like it really is such a detriment because I'm not missing opportunities because I haven't had the experience where I get a commission from someone and they expect a certain sound. 
and I give them something else and it's a problem. I've never had the, that experience. But what maybe ameliorates the issue a little bit is that usually I'm writing for people that I know, or at least I know how they sound when they play, or I know what they they're sort of specialize in, and that influences what I write a lot. And so if people if someone commissions me the group or the individual will get a piece that is usually well suited to them and a lot of my pieces have been written for the same few people so in that way it's it's not so much an issue because it's sort of offset by this other thing and it's different when so for example with this piece that was played yesterday it was the second performance and the singers had very little experience with contemporary music and also weren't native English speakers and the piece is all spoken word English. And so in that situation, it does become quite difficult because I've written it thinking about these specific individuals and especially for singers when they're, you know, they have a certain stage presence. Maybe the original group is is good with a certain amount of like dramatic energy and, you know, they could pull off like theatricality. And so then when you bring it to a group that is hired by a festival, it becomes that can then become more of a challenge. But I think that's going to happen irregardless. Yeah. Of, you ta- yeah. Like you specifically tailored a suit for someone with a certain body type. And then people were like, we like that suit. Let's put it on this, you know, humongous fat guy. And then more it's like less. ripping off. Though it's it like ripping up the steam, it seams. Wasn't, and, it wasn't. I mean, they did a, a nice job yesterday. Yeah. So it wasn't quite so bad. And but. voice is the worst for that because it's so unique from voice to voice. Like yeah. you can't say like in general, you can say okay, if you're writing a piece for piano that, okay, it may be a different model piano that may be a little bit brighter, but it's not going to be as huge an amount as a variation between your voice and my voice. Yeah, definitely. And in, on a piece that sort of relies on accents, it becomes even harder when you're bringing it to a different country. And it's all of a sudden it's like Dutch accents. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. But you know, it's, it's okay as long as the words are clear and understandable, but. How was it originally acted out? Because um, I only, I only saw the It was the same. The it's sort of oratorio style. So you have the four singers um, in the middle and then the instruments on the outside. And I don't mean acting in terms of any type of movement or direction. I just mean in how one projects their voice and maybe gesticulates a little bit with their body language. I almost imagine it that it would have it worked really well if it was kind of not done in the vein of concert music the way it was taught yeah yeah in fact I if think... you just talked like we were um, obviously you would rehearse it but if yeah. you would talk it like we were like you were reading a letter and not be so official about every you know every right. statement like singers are trained to do i think it would be really nice to do a version with um with actors actually actors that can sing in a very simple way or i mean many actors are good singers they're just not classically trained or but i think actually I would only have to change it a little bit and I could do a version with four actors instead of four singers. And it may actually sort of work work better because it's really presented like theater. It's really midway between theater and contemporary or, you know, concert music. I mean, I like to think of it most, it's most related to sort of radio plays. So spoken word with yeah, sound effects. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, maybe it's better to do with, with actors, actually, who are trained to project their voice and, and take on sort of the subtleties of the, the spoken word parts. Yeah, no, it re- actually, you're right. It re- did remind me of those ra- 1950 yeah. like radio plays, like almost like the latest episode of uh, Little Orphan Annie or you know something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it would be nice. I mean, if I ever get the opportunity, I would, 
I would definitely try it out with actors. You might want to move on to something different by the time that happens. Yeah, I mean, you're if, like, oh, if, no more radio play. You know, if I'm not, yeah. the, I'm not going to be the radio play guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, but the thing is, I'm I'm planning on using the entire text of the novel eventually. I want to have like a, the whole thing set. It'd be one of these huge epic pieces made out of lots of smaller pieces. And so I actually just finished a piece for Ekmales, who's a vocal sextet in um, New York. And they, I said another, I did, it's like a 25 minute piece. It's another 10 chapters or so of the book. How long is the whole thing going to be? I think it would have to be at least like four hours. I think it would be hard to do in one setting. I think probably my goal, my goal as it stands right now would be that it would be realized as a recorded thing. It would be performable, but the product that I'm sort of want to create of it at the end would be like a book. It would be literally a radio play, like books on tape. It would be a four CD set of... A musical book on tape. Yeah, exactly. And it would be nice to have it be performable in the theater. And there are some groups that do these epic shows. Like there was um, Elevator Repair Service in New York did uh, Gats, which is the entire text of Great Gatsby. It's like seven hours. Maybe, maybe it'll be possible to do this. Yeah, it's really down the road. I mean, at this point, I've set. That's a long time of being one thing. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Uh, I want to get back to the consistency thing. There's got to be because there's got to be something about you that's consistent from piece to piece. I mean, it's coming from the same brain. Another thing that's pretty consistent between my pieces is the use of just intonation, and because just intonation is such a big thing that can encompass so much stuff. Um, one piece will use it really differently from the next, but there's still this sort of microtonal sound and there's my personal preferences for certain intervals. Um, so that is something that is, happens a lot. And, but then again, in some pieces I, I try to really put that in the background or impose a certain amount of predetermined pitch stuff so that I don't do the same thing again. Say that again, predetermined pitch stuff, so you don't do the same thing again? Yeah, so like, for instance, a piece I just did called Tribute for Ensemble Asculta, which is part of a summer program thing. In this piece, I made a... It's sort of a micro concerto for guitar. It's like eight minutes, and it's sort of all about the acoustics, uh, nylon string guitar. What I did was I found a retuning of the guitar that I liked, and I made... I sort of chose my chords by fooling around the guitar and finding these chords that I liked and then wrote them out and analyzed them and used them in the piece. And so I ended up with a very imperfect... So the propensity for me in when using just intonation is I end up with these very mathematically beautiful relationships between everything. Um, and it works very well, but in this piece, I had like really sort of dirty dissonant harmonies that... Although there was some sort of just intonation tuning of the guitar, it was kind of obliterated by this equal temperament fretboard that one is playing on. And then that translates... Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And then that translates into the um, into the instruments as well. And so it ends up being a very gestural piece, um, which is not really about pitch at all. And so in that piece, I was trying to, well, specifically put issues of timing before issues of... of um, relationships is there always a process of fooling around and then you find something that you like and then you analyze that yeah often yeah Yeah. i mean i like the idea uh when developing at an early stage of a composition i like the idea of it being like a a playful part of the process 
and the idea of play. So like a, a section of the piece, like I'm going to use these five pitches and it's going to be this sort of character. And then within those bounds that are very loose, I can sort of play. That is to say, improvise with the material. Is that, do you, do you ever find a time where you have to like shut down play and be professional? Do you know what I mean? You said in the beginning of the piece, you were fooling around with the guitar and you found some things you like from playing around and then you stopped playing around and you analyzed it. Yeah. And then you started to write the piece. That means the playtime is over. Yeah. And you're writing the piece. Is that how it works or do or could you or could you at some point during uh you know the quote serious process of I could go back to play. Yeah, go back to play. I I think so, yeah. I mean if it was just playing all the time as in like having fun or whatever Oh, you'd have an awful loose. product. Yeah, a product. I mean, maybe awful it would piece. be awful product. It may be also get frustrating doing it. Like it's, it makes me think of this the this um, Tom Waits quote where he's like, "I don't like fun." You know, I like to go out and have an interesting time, but I don't like having fun, right? And so, like, fun and play get sort of boring. Actually, you want to also challenge yourself and and think and have a struggle. You don't just want to be playing all the time. I at least I don't. Yeah, and, what, and again, what you, what you make would be terrible if it was just playing all the time. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. a certain extent. But I always wonder if there's this point where, because I think I, I think actually most creative people in any field kind of work the same way. It always starts out as play, but then I yeah. think once it like once you shut that off and you make the decision not to go back, then that somehow hurts the piece too. If you're not going, to, mm-hmm. if you're not going to be like, okay, well, this isn't working now. I need we're, to, like, now we're talking about sort of like a fidelity to a system almost. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, I completely agree. I like, I mean, for me at least, I like to try to stay sensitive enough to what's happening in the piece to sense when a system or the material has somehow exhausted from whatever procedure I've placed on it. And in that at that point, I guess if if we're using play as a metaphor from like for like free creativity or using your imagination or something, then I think it's nice to apply like a layer of play over top of the whole thing once you finish the piece. Written the piece. Oh, don't once look you at finish for, the piece, well, like this you is mean just, like second draft time sure, for me to th- have fun with this. Yeah. So this is just an example. So it can happen at any point, right? But I really like if I can finish a piece a bit early. You know, don't look at it for a week. And then I take it out and I have for a little bit forgotten what I've done. And I can go through the whole piece and um, try to imagine it and listen to it and, and do revision. And sometimes it'll be like minimal, like tweaking, making like adornments, this type of stuff. And sometimes it'll be like, wow, I really need like five bars of whatever here. Or like I want to cut this whole part. Or, and that's a little bit going back to going back to the play stage in a way. Do you ever make like huge changes after the week though? Sometimes. More than just five. And do you ever start from the drawing board again? I, in recent years, I've never thrown away whole drafts. I've thrown away movements sometimes. So in a way that's a whole draft. But I generally prefer to sort of work on something and build it up and change it to a place where I'm happy with it than to start from scratch yeah i mean mostly the the things that i'll change are timing issues i mean at a certain point 
at a certain point it's hard i mean starting from scratch is one thing but to make really huge changes at a certain point becomes really difficult i think because it'll have such strong influences on the rest of the piece if i cut the entire introductory section you know if if i'm doing things where i have if i'm doing any kind of foreshadowing or narrative design that that refers to a section then cutting it will disrupt that so so much and if the point of the piece is to cut things up and have it sort of a burroughs-esque sort of thing happening then that's different but yeah i'll very rarely actually throw material away what about playing with the ensemble like the the people in rehearsal i mean yeah i mean like once it about what about once it hits reality because right now this is all hypothetically in your head right more and more I want to be able to work in rehearsal like a theater director where you have lots of time and you can make big changes in the process of rehearsal. And so I like to suss it out and, you know, see what kind of a group it is. Some people don't like big changes or even small changes. But if I can, I like to alter a lot. So it'll it'll never it'll usually never be like completely replace this music with this other music. But it'll be like timing issues a lot of the time. So add a fermata here. This tempo is wrong. Do this tempo instead. Add a poco ritardando here. Things like this. But I, if I ever had the opportunity to really have like, like in a theater production, have like the ensemble there five hours a day for a week, I would. That's totally impractical. It's isn't totally it? impractical. But I would. I, that would be really great, and I would change all sorts of stuff, I'm sure. I almost feel like we have to try and figure, way, figure out a way to make that happen. I mean, not you and me, yeah. but like... Uh, I mean, it'd be uh, great. Because that's just not the conditions where... Yeah. That's not the template I mean, now. it's crazy. It's the norm in dance and theater, right? This is yeah. just how they do it, but it's... You know why? Because they don't have notation. There's no... You, issue, you yeah. make the thing for, like... The thing is always connected to reality. Yeah, There's they no talk about, like, it's anything. being built... Yeah, you, know? you build it. You build it with each other. Yeah. So of course you're in the middle of, you know, it's the equivalent of you having an orchestra there while you're writing or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think it would be so nice. It would be better. Yeah, and that's. I mean, this is how sort of bands work a lot of the time. You build pieces. It's you. always how bands work. Yeah. No, you know, it's not like the drummer well, comes in and come it's in like in I wrote charts it. and then they learn it or whatever, but. Yeah, but I mean, it's loose charts based on a chord progression. That, that's probably all they have. Maybe they have lyrics, and then the you know the guy will be say, the bass player. I want you to do something more like this, you know. Right. And he's like, okay, I can do this. What about this? And then they, it's more. It's, yeah, exactly. It's a very dynamic situation. Yeah, it would yeah. be nice to have this in in rehearsals with uh, contemporary musicians. How do we get that? Literally, there's also organ music happening right now. Yeah, <laughs> what's playing right now? It's thriller. it's thriller again. Yeah, nice. Oh my god! <laughs> you no, know, we were talking about how do we get that? This is should we just listen to Thriller for a little bit, like Oompa Thriller? Yeah, Dutch Thriller. Is this not the weirdest museum you've ever been in? Yeah, it's really cool. It, it, like it's it. yeah, it's really cool, but it's extremely weird. Yeah. To get back to our conversation, <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying Thriller. I know I'm being unprofessional, like enjoying Thriller because I'm supposed to be steering this thing, but. I picture like a weird Dutch Michael Jackson. Blackface in the whole thing. Yeah, I know. As yeah, as yeah, possible. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> da, 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 da. Thriller. <laughs> Thriller. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's oh, ridiculous. Okay. Um, where, where the hell were we? Um, working like theater does. Yeah. Yeah. How do we get that? How do we get there? I think you, I think you have to create a norm for it by beginning with 
working with students basically i think you know if you're a student you're not getting paid and you find other students who are keen on the project who are performers and you sort of you make sort of a band with them and it 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 would take the right type of people who are into it and the right type of composer who is like doesn't treat their text as sacred because if you're going to work that way you're going to end up with something really different than when you when you began writing the piece but i think it's possible actually but i'm also thinking about like how is that monetarily possible well it's not and theater isn't either i mean it's it's the dance all the big dance companies that are in uh brussels for example it's it's state funding it's not really possible yeah but uh, there's also new music ensembles here that are heavily state funded but they still have the type of template where in order for them to earn enough money it's like gigs and new commissions and gigs and they don't have time yeah you, you were just like i had six hours of rehearsal that was amazing yeah like you can't build a piece in six hours you need 20 hours a week for yeah three weeks or i don't know i'm just throwing right. that, numbers that would be now. really good though yeah it'd be a good example yeah yeah so, well i mean in in, in the how do you earn a living doing in, that right yeah. in the contemporary theater world in new york at least it's sort of like a high-level amateur scene, it feels like for me. Like I did, I did one pro- project with my sister last year who's a director who sort of works in the scene. And, um, and it was people basically volunteering their time. There was a small stipend that was just sort of to say thank you. So they're not professionals because they're not working there full-time. They all have other jobs, but they're at, at a very high amateur level. And maybe if you're doing it in music, that's those that's you have to find that kind of scene as well. Yeah, but then you're basically saying, okay, this is how it works. Get a day job. Well, yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, you're not saying that. I mean, that's putting it very negatively. Yes. Okay. So that is the you're saying like you're saying like I I want to form a group with like-minded people who are passionate about this and who are fulfilled by this experience and make a sort of community music making thing because th- this is why the people in theater do it is they they don't go there to be bossed around by the director and make someone's vision of how it should be i mean they do to a certain extent but they also they want to have their own input they want to um have the experience of performing and feeling good about their performance and they want to have the experience of like doing something well and they are really fulfilled by it. It's like an important part of their lives. You know, and the, I guess, again, I, in music, it, it sort of it looks a little bit more like a band than like a contemporary music ensemble, the equivalent. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I think that is the best way. But like I said, at the same time, people want to do it as a profession. And if you're going to do that, you have to gig and gig and gig and gig yeah. and gig. And we've commissioned so many pieces this year. and. This is the amount of time we spend to it. And we practice so hard that, you know, if you give us a concrete score, then we'll know exactly what to do with it and be able to do it well. But yeah. it's not dynamic. It's yeah, it's the relationship And I'm not that we saying I want to do away with that, actually. I mean, I like working that in that way, too. But it would just be interesting to work in different ways sometimes. I mean, working with the theater group was quite interesting because we did use the vo- their voices in it. And it was, I mean, it was kind of like an opera. It was very a musical production it's an interesting experience to have i think working in that way with a dance group or a theater group yeah it certainly opened your mind a lot and you have to be a bit more resourceful sometimes because you know like oh this person doesn't read music but they're gonna sing yeah and you also have to give up the idea that you might have a unified vision of something yeah yeah because because not only are 
people not able to do things, but they also... Yeah, sometimes you're bossed around and sometimes at best it's like a collaboration where you can bring your side to the table. But And fighting too. It's inevitable a little bit. Especially working with my sister, you know, we're siblings, so... Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But it wasn't that... Well, actually, it, it, we didn't really fight much, I gotta say. Everything went pretty smoothly, but she left me a lot of space to, in terms of controlling what it would sound like, so... Yeah, you worked with your sister. I guess you, get, you must get along with her. You're both artists, I guess, so you... Yeah, no, we get along great, and yeah, both live in New York for the first time she lived there for a long time and i just moved there so and you decided to collaborate with her yeah and we will again it went really well and we'll definitely do it again well congratulations on that hey we've been talking for a while so uh i think that's a good place to end it thank you for doing this yeah thank you